Are you a healthcare professional looking to improve your skills and elevate your patient care? Evidence in Motion can help with that. Take your career to the next level with one of our comprehensive educational courses covering topics like pain science, dry needling, and more. These courses are designed to enhance your expertise and confidence. And as a JOSPT listener, you get an exclusive discount. Use code PODCAST10 when you reserve your spot and receive 10% off your overall registration costs. Visit evidenceinmotion.com to browse our full catalog of offerings and get started by finding a course near you. Again, visit evidenceinmotion.com and save 10% on your purchase when you use code PODCAST10. Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Today, we are at it again with a physician-focused episode, chatting with Dr. Casey Humbert about Achilles tendon repairs. Dr. Humbert is the Chief of Foot and Ankle Orthopedics at the University of Pennsylvania, as well as the Founder and Coordinator of Program in Surgical Ethics and Health Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. My name is Dan Chapman. I'm a U.S.-based physical therapist and owner of Chapman PT in Baltimore, Maryland. And I'm Chelsea Kuman, a physical therapist and athletic trainer at Stanford University Athletics. Dr. Humbert, thank you so much for joining us again on the podcast to share all of your expertise about the foot and ankle, cutting it open, sewing it back up again. I am thrilled to be back. Okay, so we're, today we're going to jump into all things Achilles. Let's hit on first, who are we seeing? So who are you going to decide is appropriate for an actual like surgical repair of an Achilles versus a conservative care, like a non-op? I think that's an awesome question. And the short and long answer is we have no idea. And we are doing a lot and lot of research. Achilles is near and dear to my heart because that is our major research area here at Penn. We have a human motion lab where we're studying gait and we just got 8 million bucks from the National Institutes of Health to study this. And we're trying to figure out these types of questions. The party line had been that there's higher rates of re-rupture with non-operative management compared to operative management of Achilles tendon ruptures. It appears that with functional rehab, that probably isn't true, meaning the non operative management that didn't work was when you made people non-weight bearing in a cast for an extended period of time because tendons dislike immobilization. And I think if we look at physical therapy data over the past, you know, 15, 20 years, the, what we've learned is tendons like to stay in motion. Trying to figure out safe range of motion has been a key focus in multiple joints. So when you do a functional rehabilitation program, which essentially means putting folks in a boot with a plantar flexed foot with the idea being the Achilles tendon is cut and you're trying to have those ends overlap so that it can heal. Folks do fairly well with or without surgery. There are tricks to this though, which I think are really meaningful. Most studies where they've compared it, folks were put in a plantar flexed position very early. And a lot of the data comes out of Italy when you talk to folks and read the papers deeply, you see that anyone who wasn't seen within the first two days for these ruptures got surgery and oh. they don't tell you about that. So if you have someone who's been walking around for a week with an Achilles tendon rupture and those tendon ends haven't been snuggling up against each other, healing with that acute inflammatory process, there's a huge hematoma, blood clot forms, 
And that's what we see at the time of surgery. So if those tendons haven't been kind of snuggled up together, it's really hard for me to imagine that whatever healing they get between them is going to be substantial enough for them to walk with good function and it will heal elongated. So all comers, someone shows up. I ruptured my Achilles earlier today. What are my options? I'll tell them that we can treat these with or without surgery. Now, who do I see that's unhappy with non-operative management? There's a reason that every professional athlete gets surgery, right? And the reason is we do think that you lose some power and explosiveness with non-operative management. So if you love to walk and bike, you'll probably do okay with non-op. If you want to do any sort of jumping, high-intensity, explosive sport, my CrossFitters, basketball players, even hockey, you know, even though you're booted in hockey, obviously soccer, anything where you're cleated, cutting, pivoting, I obviously give them the spiel about it, but I tell them I'm anxious if you want to try and return to this, whether or not you will be able to in the same predictable manner. I will not lie that a 20 to 30 year old male athlete is the person that I am least likely to think that non-op is going to be as good as surgery. They are also the folks who are most likely to come in being like, I'm going to have surgery. My buddy had surgery. I want surgery. Okay. So that's a great segue. So Let's talk about then what does that procedure actually entail when we're deciding or the patient is demanding surgery? And I know that there's a couple different types. I don't know, like if you guys learn how to do all of them or you have a specialty or how that's decided. So we're talking about primary Achilles ruptures. What we mean by primary is not the person who shows up and they ruptured four months ago and they didn't know. That would be the chronic. Sure. So primary acute Achilles tendon rupture. And we're talking about it rupturing in the tendon. There are some weird ones that actually rip right off the bone seen most commonly in folks with diabetes, autoimmune disease are not super common. And often they take a little bone with them. Those all have to have surgery. They will not heal. The tendon retracts and recoils. And when you're repairing an Achilles tendon, it actually looks, someone wants to describe it to me as two horsetails. It totally looks like that's like weird mops overlapping. But if you pull the bone directly off, it's a real clean edge and it won't heal back down. I have my personal preference, which is doing the smallest incision possible. And I use a special jig that helps grab the tendon, pass suture through it. The more traditional open incision is a longer incision. There aren't real differences in outcome. It's more about the size of the incision. From my perspective, the biggest issue I fear is a wound in a highly active person. So doing it through, you know, a less than two centimeter incision is generally my goal. Means that they have low risk of any sort of wound healing that would prevent me from ramping them back up as soon as possible to sports. And so I like to start PT pretty early and the smaller incision lets me do that. So you're just sewing it back together again. Is there any time where you have to do anything else? If you have someone who has a lot of underlying tendon degeneration, there are lots of different products out there and different people tell you about augmentation and People have tried different things, but most folks I know of are just like taking the two tendon ends, sewing them back together. And that's your kind of your surgery. You try and have multiple sutures crossing the repair site. It's a kind of traditional, that's called a core suture. And we try and have a minimum of four, ideally six core sutures crossing. There had been a trend several years ago to try and have the toe in the same position as the other side. So you're trying to have it in the same resting position. So you have equal tension. 
I think that's fallen out of favor a bit because some studies have been done that show all these tendons stretch. Now I generally try and put them as tight as I possibly can. And I'll be honest, I have yet to have anyone who at one year says it feels too tight. And so I, I will warn folks, I want you to be complaining at three and six months that it still feels too tight because that usually means you'll love it at one year and you won't feel weak. But if you love it at three months, I worry it's going to be too loose at a year. And then folks will say that they feel like they're walking on a flat tire. And that's the complaint that I'll hear from folks who have had it treated non-operatively where it has elongated and they'll say, I'm fine for short distances, but when walking longer distances, it wipes out on me and I feel like I'm walking on a flat tire. It's a very cool surgery to do. But when I, like patients will be like, what's this, what's this thing on my foot? I'll be like, oh, that's where I pulled the tendon through the bottom of your foot. And like you put suture on it and you drill through the heel. You send the tendon through a hole in the heel bone. And then you put in an interference screw. So it squeezes up against the tendon and pushes it up against the bone. So it holds it at the length that you want it. There are very specific restrictions post-op. So can you go into what your typical ones are and why they are? Because I think that's the real key for us knowing, you know, why we're doing stuff and it's going to help us figure out, you know, what to do in the meantime. Do whatever the doc wants you to be doing because we all have our protocols. People are really, really particular about this. And if you're confused about a protocol and you're not sure about it, this is something that you want to ask the surgeon that you partner with. I use a protocol that's primarily based on the one published in the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery in 2010. And it was about a accelerated kind of rehab protocol. And so essentially for the first two weeks until the incision's healed, I keep you off it in the plantar flex splint. Your toe looks like you're on point if you're a ballerina. You come back to the office. I take out the stitches if everything's looking good. And I say, all right, start PT today. I put people in a boot with at least two heel lifts. One of the big things we're studying is, is there differences in tendon loading depending on boot? And it looks like there are different boots and different tendon loads that are transferred in our gate lab studies. So we're trying to figure out how to optimize that. There may be a best type of boot. And essentially, they start partial weight bearing in the boot with crutches until they get to full weight bearing at around four weeks. And then we work on getting rid of the heel lifts. That takes until us until around week, week six, eight. And then we get rid of the boot and often throw the heel lifts back in a sneaker as they get rid of it. I uh, let people this whole time be doing things like biking and swimming and those sorts of rehab things. And there's a whole kind of acute versus moderate time point rehab of what they're doing. The big thing that I'm trying to avoid is overstretching the tendon. If a patient tells me that their PT is really focused on stretching the Achilles in those first few weeks, I will I get driven a bit crazy by that because the last thing I want to do is have it elongate. One of the most interesting studies done, it came out of Europe, was they put these little beads along the tendon. They actually sewed it into the tendon so they could take x-rays and see if the space changed between. So it was an actual capturing the lengthening of the tendon and, and all these tendons lengthened. So I try and explain to patients, I don't care that you're tight and that your Achilles is tight. I want it tight because no matter what I do, it's going to loosen up on me. And I think that's one of the harder things that we don't yet really know about how to rehab people with non-op 
that it is just kind of a, a guessing game sometimes in terms of how much you position their foot down. If I had an ultrasound, I'd love to be able to go in and, you know, see and be like, okay, yep, at this position, the tendon ends are now overlapped. And I'm going to change your PT protocol to say you're only allowed to drop X percent each week because your gap was so substantial. You have to be in 60 degrees of Aquinas for those ends to even touch. I don't require certainly any advanced imaging on patients. And even the MRI isn't totally predictive. So we're still trying to figure out a lot of it. But my, my overall theme is focus on strength over flexibility, because no matter what, it's always going to be a stretchier rubber band than a normal tissue. When that protocol says no dorsiflexion, passive or active, you got to listen to that. And then we can be creative. That's what our job is to be able to strengthen without that. Passive always stretches me much more. Because most folks actively, it starts to kind of pull and be tight and they freak out and they, yeah, they stop yeah. there. It's kind of self-limiting. Um, it is. And so when we do the rehab, I always try and encourage my PTs to reach out if they have questions. Now, I've definitely had some folks who are like, well, I'm just not comfortable letting them put weight on it right now. I understand that that maybe when you trained, you had surgeons keeping folks in a plantar flexed cast for eight weeks. I promise this is safe. I know how much worse these tendons do with prolonged non-weight bearing and prolonged immobilization. They they like the motion. It sounds like the biggest thing, right? That dorsiflexion, that stretching. Is there anything else? This this is, you know, you got a platform here to share with PTs who are listening to, to the podcast about anything else that you've really seen that from PTs that is really helpful or maybe some pitfalls that you've seen? Anything outside of the stretching or is that the big thing? I think a lot of the modalities are probably voodoo that is intended for emotional support. So I think ultrasound, Graston, all of these things, I, I would, I'm fine with things that make folks feel better and kind of settle them down at the end of the work. But when I have patients who are like, oh, I went to PT and they massaged me for an hour. It was great. I'm like, oh, that's not, first off, that's a huge time investment from the PT to be doing something that's probably less efficacious. Um, but it's not what this muscle needs. And so I think balancing modalities is is really key. And I would, as a call to my physical therapy colleagues, please study stuff. So like, let's do these studies. I'm really curious, does blood flow restriction, like what is the data on that? How can it mm. help? Does it only help big muscle things? Is it better for tendons? Does it have any role in ligaments, which you know, we don't think of as super vast in the same way we do of muscles. I want us to study these things that we, you know, we, we don't want to be doing things that we don't know if they're efficacious or God forbid, harmful. Yeah, um, sure, And sure. so I'm not saying that I think massage or ultrasound or Graston are harmful. I just don't think it's the primary thing. Like if someone says, okay, I can have 10 minutes. Should I work with them on core stabilization, hip mobility and hip strength to get the rest of them ready to return, you know, this marathon or return to running? Or should I do Graston? I am not going to vote for Graston in that situation. And never forget the Achilles. It crosses three joints. The gastrocnemius crosses the knee joint. So doing hip and knee rehab makes sense. You know, you're firing and exciting the tendon when you're moving the knee. And then it also crosses the ankle and the subtalar joint. It's a really impressive muscle and it, it needs to be beat on. Kind of really early focused on that strengthening. 
I have patients who are incredibly fit weightlifters and stuff. And even a year out, they all still have a little bit of atrophy of their calf, no matter how aggressively I rehab them. I think that you are a closeted PT. I think that you, this has been a whole scheme the whole time that you're put on a front as a surgeon. You know what you're talking about. Let's go. I am honored with that. I think that I really, really... Uh, what is it, a polymath who loves to learn from others. And so I have hung out with amazing colleagues. I have people who educate me and life is more fun if you just assume everybody is something to teach you and you listen to them. And so when you're watching your patient outcomes, and you're trying to say who's doing balls and who isn't, then you go call the people whose folks are doing balls and you say, what are you doing differently? I think that 20% most of the Achilles stuff is me and 80% is the patient PT and surgeon partnership after. Is there anything that you're looking for specifically when we try to return these patients to sport? And I know it's going to depend on the sport and all of that, but is there anything that you like really want to, you know, in that last kind of appointment they have with you before they're cleared or whatever, is there anything that you really want to look for? I never clear folks for sport. Because I don't know what that means. <laughs> I tell them that they're welcome to try and ramp back up to playing their sport. But I always get worried that if it's like a sports clearance note or something, that's almost the same as, you know, being like, no, your heart's perfect. You're not going to have a heart issue. Like, no, we, we can't ever predict that. We can risk stratify. So from my perspective, when someone can do a single leg heel raise, they're ready to start running and working up to jumping. Everybody gets that back at a different time. That doesn't mean I hold off on any sort of impact activity till then. I have lots of folks doing ultra G when they can still only do a bilateral heel raise. But if they want to do true running, you know, something at a, a real pace, they usually can't get there until they can do a single leg heel raise. I partner with my partner uh, in physical therapy here, Justin Chaganon, his phenomenal sports med team. And they have a whole kind of assessment that they do that's much more in depth than anything that I can do in an office visit for our high level athletes and return to sport. I think every phenomenal collegiate program has that. In terms of kind of the weekend warrior types, I will often print out a couch to 5k program for them when they feel like they're ready to try and do that. And I'm like, here's how you ease back into stuff when I know they're no longer going to have time to be seeing a physical therapist as routinely. In terms of what I do in the office, if I have someone I'm at all anxious with, or they're like, you know, the college kid who ruptured the Achilles five months earlier, I make them do a single leg heel raise, and then I make them do 20 jumping jacks. And I kind of feel like if they can do that, I use jumping jacks as a simple dynamic motion. It's something that you can kind of do in place. And it includes lateral motion. So when they they are like, oh, I can't do that. Then I'm like, okay, someone needs to go tune up your hip abductors, get your core tuned. It's not just about the Achilles, it's the rest of your body. And I, as someone who loves to work with phenomenal gait researchers, truly appreciate the fact that it's all connected. And so thinking about the whole human for return to sport whether it's a fracture where the bone's fully healed nor Achilles where they're fully repaired. Like, yeah, you're right. The ankle's ready. The rest of you now has to catch up. You've been doing this for too long. You know that you can't just clear somebody and because they're going to go right back to it and they haven't done enough of the other stuff to build back up and they're going to be 100%. hurting somewhere else. 
Dr. Humbert, thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge on on Achilles repairs. I mean, I really appreciate appreciate you taking the time and taking us through everything. I really appreciate it. And I think I speak definitely for all my partners, but I think I can kind of speak for the field and we appreciate what our physical therapy colleagues do to get folks back. As a, a plug, the American Orthopedic Foot and Ankle Society does have some lovely partnerships and have worked to have programming within the AOFAS educational curriculum for physical therapists. Please go check out AOFAS.org. It's a great place for further knowledge. It has fantastic handouts in terms of stuff of like printing out how to be non-weight bearing. We have a whole series there. We have a series on like ankle sprains. It has some lovely pictures to explain to your patients. It has some home program stuff. So I'm printing from that site constantly in addition to referring pretty much everybody who comes to the office gets to see you guys for your post-op. No, all right. Yeah, we'll put we'll link that in the show notes. That's awesome. Yeah, so go to <laughs> footcaremd.org is the patient handouts and AOFAS Yay. for your, your educational needs. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favorite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter. We're at JOSPT and Facebook, where JOSPT official. Talk with you next time.